The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, this is Tim Foster with the Capital Weekly, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Uh, this episode, we are going to continue in our series of broadcasts presenting panel discussions from last week's postmortem of the election. The postmortem was an event that we hosted in conjunction with the McGeorge Capital Center for Law and Policy. We have been hosting these events every other year since 2010, uh, looking at what just happened in the election. So in some cases, we may not have final numbers or know exactly what's happening uh, because this was elect- uh, this was held not even 48 hours after the uh, after the polls had closed. So things are still a little bit in flux. That said, I think these are very interesting discussions and I think you'll find this one particularly interesting. This is a panel discussion about the face of the electorate. And as I think we all have learned, the election did not turn out as indicated in early polls, and the electorate also did not appear to vote the way they had been expected, and nor did the uh, turnout figure the way that people had predicted. So we were very lucky to have some very distinguished panelists to discuss this, uh, including Shikari Byerly, Mindy Romero, Roger Salazar, and Rob Stutzman. We were very, very lucky to have moderator Dan Moraine on hand. He's currently with the Sacramento Press Club. Dan is a longtime journalist in California, has been with the Sacramento Bee, with CalMatters, the Los Angeles Times. Uh, he is one of the best known and most respected journalists in California. We were so lucky to have him, especially because he has just, just finished uh, adding a new title to his resume, author. Dan just finished up a biography of Kamala Harris called Kamala's Way, and that will be published January 21st. And I urge you to take a look at, look for that when it comes out. So with that, I'm going to uh, thank our sponsors. The only way we could do these sorts of programs is with the support of organizations and of folks like yourself. So this time out, we had support from the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. They've been with us basically since the beginning. They're a presenting sponsor for everything we do. Also, KP Public Affairs, longtime sponsor of Capital Weekly's events, as has been the Western States Petroleum Association. Also, Kaiser Permanente. California Building Industry Association, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, Perry Communications, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, California Professional Firefighters, Pandora, and Polytreat. So thanks to them for supporting our programming. We really could not do this without them. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn you over to Dan Rain. Again, this was recorded last Thursday, so there were still some numbers in flux that we had not quite figured out. Of course, as I record this, they still have not officially uh, affirmed the transition of the election. So who knows what's going to happen. But enjoy this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be posting the keynote discussion from this event with Ace Smith, who is a longtime campaign consultant, probably California's best-known campaign consultant. We'll be posting that in the next day or so. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy listening. Thank, thanks a lot, Tim. You know, my, my feeling is that everybody who's logging in knows folks here, so I'm going to jump right in. I mean, if you, if you want their bios, go to Capital Weekly's great website, and it's, it's right there. Um, I'd like to start with Mindy, 
uh, Romero. Um, yes, you're on the spot, Mindy, but you're muted. Um, so unmute. And, um, and ask you if this electorate was different from you at, at USC and at UC Davis before that, you've, you've studied uh, voters and, and the electorate. Is, was this one significantly different or how was it different? Um, well, we won't really know for a number of months until the vote is fully counted, certified. Uh, voter files are available to us from the county, from the Secretary of State, and us, you know, many of us as researchers can dive in and start doing the analysis. Um, at this point, what we do know is it's, it's a large electorate, right? So we're looking at some uh, high numbers, high turnout. We don't know exactly how, how high, and I'm a little hesitant to say, um, you know, the big question is we saw tremendous early voting, right, record early voting uh, in California and, and many parts across the country, but we didn't know how much of that was kind of front loading what we would expect on election day. The first week or so, we were thinking, oh gosh, this, you know, maybe this is just completely front loaded and it's going to kind of, you know, taper off. Of course, it kept going and kept going. Um, but the final numbers, the numbers that are being counted now, the ballots that are being counted now include, uh, you know, are, are still a question mark for us. And we have many more ballots that are still coming in, vote by mail ballots. Uh, presumably, most of those will come in till, uh, uh, for between now and Friday, but they, you know, legally now in California, we can keep accepting ballots for 17 days. I don't think we'll have very many after Friday, but we could have some. Um, so we're looking at at least the same numbers or probably greater numbers. So we had about 14 and a half million in 2016. I think it's a safe bet we're gonna pass that, but we don't measure turnout just to be clear with everyone by the number of voters. If we had the exact same number as we had in 2016, we actually would have decreased turnout because we have a greater denominator. We have an ever growing population in California. So if we get to 15, if we get to 16, if we get beyond 16, though in that range, we're looking at the highest turnout since at least 19, 16 million would be the highest turnout since 1972. 17 million would be the highest turnout since 1960. Eligible turnout, percentage of those eligible to vote. So we're looking at some really big numbers, but we won't really know till we see all those ballots as they come in. There will be a count from the Secretary of State's office tomorrow for those geeks out there that want to sign on and the unprocessed ballot count that we always look for. But even then, that doesn't exactly tell us what to expect because more ballots can come in after tomorrow morning. So, but to get to what you're really asking me, Dan, is the shape of the electorate. Typically right, when we see right. really high turnout, we expect that that means we have a more representative electorate. We have more voters that don't usually come out. Um, new voters, those are gonna be from historically underrepresented communities, especially for a state like California. So more African-American, more Latino, more Asian-American, more young, for instance. I think we will see a more representative electorate. The question is just how representative. We're not gonna close the gaps. The turnout rates are still gonna be substantial between by race, ethnicity, age, and other statuses. That unfortunately is a is a is entrenched and is a given in our in our electoral system. Um, what what we want to hopefully see is just greater representation, so larger percentages of the pie of voters that come from historically underrepresented groups. Um, and I think at one thing I can say for sure is that we're probably gonna we're gonna reach a, the greatest share of the electorate that is Latino. But that was going to happen even if turnout rates were exactly the same for Latinos and the gap between white and Latino was the same in this election as in 2016 because we have a growing Latino population. So you have the same turnout rate, but you have a growing denominator, growing pie. So we're going to see the greatest share of the electorate that is Latino 
And that's exciting to see. But again, it doesn't mean properly represented because numerically represented means that your share of the vote is the same as your share of the eligible voter population. Um, I think that'll narrow a little bit. Again, more a little better represented, but we're not going to see that completely close, right? Okay, well, because unfortunately, I, disparities I, are entrenched. I'm sure that Rob sure will, will want to talk about, talk about define, define um, uh, what is uh, what is a voter, voter, but. Um, Shikari, I'd like to ask you about, about the whole vote by mail phenomenon this year and, and whether that's really changing, um, well, how, that, how that's changing our, our, our elections. I know that that's something you've been focusing on, right? You may be muted, Shikari. Are you? Thank you, Dan. There you go. I yeah, nationwide, certainly the massive surge in vote by mail is an absolute game changer. And that has been the case in California as well. I mean, we had early reports um, shortly after people started uh, turning in or mailing in their ballots uh, in early to mid-October that the, the rate of vote by mail voting was just tremendous. And this is particularly important for one of the key segments in, in the electorate, African-American voters, who typically will uh, vote in person because of the long and hard struggle to secure voting rights in this country, um, long and bloody, so to speak, struggle. And so in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of um, you know, record uh, reportings of voter suppression, you see this community really pivoting to vote by mail in a very remarkable way. And that's true across the country. The gains that we are seeing Joe Biden make uh, and the narrowing of the gap in key states like Pennsylvania, for example, are coming from heavily Democratic urban centers where you have a significant proportion of voters of color. And so as we see the gaps narrow in some of these key battleground states, it will largely be vote by mail. I'd also like to pick up on one of the points that Mindy made about the surge voter and the rise in the what I call the emerging electorate. So this is the emerging the um, surge in Latino voters just by sheer uh, volume of the, of the growing population, but also the excitement and engagement in this election. And we have some early indications, I think, about turnout and particularly about young voters. So if we look at the um, total votes received to date nationally, Joe Biden has actually made history in beating Barack Obama's record for the most votes cast. So uh, previously, this was held by Obama in 2008. He received um, 69,498 and 516 votes to be exact when he beat Joe, um, uh, John McCain. Biden eclipsed that uh, at 1.30 p.m. yesterday. So according to the New York Times, uh, he broke that 70 million record um, vote threshold. So this is remarkably exciting. I think uh, Donald Trump may even beat that record. And a lot of that we can attribute to the rise in the persistence of the youth vote. And, and in California, we saw 20, 30 point increase in the youth vote in 2018. And I dare say, as the returns come in and we are able to really see what the age segmentations are, both in the vote by mail, but overall voting, we will see that surge vote coming from our voters that are under 25, uh, which is is really, I think, signals a pivotal point in California and also our country that early on in their 
their political socialization, you have a whole generation of voters that have had this experience uh, of the value of the vote, the significance of the vote, and hopefully they will see that their vote is actually counted uh, and a part of the winning majority on election day. So interesting. So I, I know that we'll want to ask Rob what has happened in, uh, in the U.S. Senate um, and maybe even in the state Senate. Uh, but I wanted to go to Roger first um, to, uh, to talk about what it means to be a Latino voter. It's a little different in Miami maybe than it is in, I don't know, Tulare. Yeah, no, I think it's right. And, and again, underscore the points that Shari and, and, uh, and Indy have, have, have pointed out. Uh, again, you're see, you're, you are seeing just by the sheer force of numbers, uh, the sheer population numbers, uh, you know, a surge in Latino voters. Uh, and, and I think we're going to be able to take away a number of lessons from this campaign when all is said and done. Uh, when we look at the difference in uh, the way the campaigns uh, structure their outreach uh, to Latino voters in, in Florida and Miami-Dade, for example, and in Texas, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, where uh, you, you saw Trump actually gain, uh, you know, with, uh, with Latino voters so far anyways, uh, in, in those states, uh, um, you know, to the detriment of, 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 of Joe Biden. And, uh, and again, it's, it's a completely different Latino voter in, in, in Miami than it is, say, in Arizona and Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the Shigari is right. The, 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 I think the, if there's, if, there's uh, if, if Biden ends up flipping that seat in Pennsylvania, flipping that state in Pennsylvania as those numbers shrink, he's going to owe it all to, uh, to, to voters of color, African-American voters and Latino voters uh, in, in, uh, in Pennsylvania and Arizona. Clearly, uh, they did a, an amazing job of outreach with uh, with Latino voters uh, there. Uh, you know, you're also going to take into, into account uh, of the great job that uh, uh, Cindy McCain did uh, in Arizona. So it's not just Latino voters, uh, but uh, um, but there is a tremendous difference uh, in, in the way uh, you know uh, campaigns reach out to these voters, and I think. Uh, um, you're going to have to. Uh, they're going to have to get a little tighter uh, in, on, at the at the national level. Uh, again, I, I actually end up. I think, I think this campaign will end up uh, with, a, with a Biden victory. So, uh, you know, we should, uh, as Democrats, you know, not do too much self-flagellation. Uh, um, you know, that that's that. You know, I think there's 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 cause for celebration here, but there's also lessons that that uh, that, that we're able to learn uh, and take away from this on how we can do things better uh, with uh, with the Latino voter. Well, what what happened in uh, Miami? Uh, well, I think that the, the Trump campaign and and uh, uh, you know and and you know Rob watches this as well, but I think they did a very good job of of uh, uh, you know of uh, tar- targeting those Cuban voters, Venezuelan voter- voters, uh, you know voters who uh, you know have a a very strong aversion to socialism uh, uh, because uh, and and they painted Joe Biden as a socialist. Uh, in, uh, in in a lot of their targeting, uh, you know, there was a lot of, of uh, what I feel was uh, um, a deceptive uh, um, uh, social media and text campaigns that were going on that were very effective uh, in those communities. They used validators uh, from those communities uh, uh, to spread the message uh, for Trump. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Cuban American validators, uh, uh, celebrities, and uh, you know, popular figures there to, to spread those messages. Uh, and it worked. Um, you know, uh, again, as 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 much as we hate to say this in politics, that the that the negative types of campaigns is something that, that we all abhor. Um, it worked for him in in Florida, I think. Uh, Texas, I'd have to take a, a stronger look at. I, I'd really want to see how he made inroads uh, in in some of those local locations. There are some places uh, in in the Rio Grande Valley where Trump did much better than he did even the last time out. Uh, and it's just, you know. Uh, 
the numbers are surprising. So, uh, you know, we really have to do a deep dive into, into what impacted them. Maybe Mindy knows. <laughs> what, Mindy? Well, I just, not that I know. <laughs> um, I was just going to say what I think, which could be dangerous, right? Uh, the gap. Um, you know, I, I want to be careful here uh, not to give the Trump campaign too much credit for what happened in Miami-Dade. I think certainly the number one factor on his end was that he was present for the last four years to some degree with messaging, with uh, framing, certainly, as as Roger said, um, you know, uh, sparking fears around socialist Biden and so forth, right? That kind of framing really, I think, triggered triggered a lot for, for many voters. Um, but we do have different Latino electorates. It's a non, not a monolithic group across the country. And I think as much as Trump can get some credit for what happened in Miami-Dade, the Biden campaign, and more, more specifically, the Democratic um, Party, uh, needs to get, a blame, get the blame for coming in late, for not keeping a machine of some sort, right, from Clinton to, to Biden, uh, to relying on, you know, uh, the, the groups there with that, that were homegrown, that had very little support, Bloomberg money coming in just in the last few weeks. Um, there were so many missteps by the Democratic Party that it, we couldn't list them all right here, right? And we saw that in, 20, in 2016 with Clinton and her campaign. Position that against Arizona, where, and again, Latinos have been a big part of whatever is going to happen, right, in terms of the presidential race, a big part of California um, and a big part of uh, Arizona, if, if there is indeed a victory there for Biden. But in Arizona, um, you know, that's been building for years, even independent of the National Democratic Party. So reactions to SB 1070, um, groups coming, groups homegrown um, and resources coming in to support them over time have really have really been the story of the change uh, politically in Arizona, not to mention, of course, the demographic change that we've seen in Maricopa County, which was happening, period. Right. And we can't can't ignore that either. So I just I don't want to give so much credit to Trump. We have to recognize the strength of the Latino and the diversity of the Latino electorate across the country. And quite frankly, so so much of it, much of the strength is homegrown, and the failures of the Democratic Party to reach out effectively, um, uh, you know, and sincerely uh, to many Latino communities. Yeah, that, that's I mean that, that's what I meant by uh, you know we need to do a better job. Um, you know, I'll leave it to you to, to go ahead and, and and say some of the things that I can't. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay, then we make a good team. I wanted to go to Rob and um, uh, you know from a Republican standpoint, if Trump. In, in fact, loses, um, and I know you're not a big fan of, of President Trump, uh, Republicans didn't do so bad on, on Tuesday, uh, right? It looks like they, prop, they may pick up some House seats. They certainly have, they seem to have held the Senate, although who knows what's gonna happen with Georgia. Um, what's, your, uh, what's your assessment of, of how Republicans fared and and what the Republican electorate uh, turnout looked like. Well, it's, rec it's record turnout. Uh, you know, if, if Donald Trump has done his service to the United States, and this might be the only one, is that he has spurred civic engagement and voting. Um, I think we're, we're headed for record turnouts across all types of party, you know, party profiles and, and demographic groups. The it was a I think it was a it was a great night for Republicans. Great night for a Republican like me that I, I do believe we're probably going to get rid of uh, Trump and the party will proceed uh, without him. There's a lot of things to be working out, but same is going to be true across the aisle. Um, I think America has chosen their divided government. They usually wait for midterms to do. No one predicted 
house pickups and they are going to pick up house seats. It may even go to double digits as we still count votes here in California and in the upstate New York. Uh, that would truly be stunning. And it really is a rebuke to this entire, this notion that the suburbs wholesale move to the Democrats in 18. And now in a presidential year with this larger turnout, they were going to make more gains where in fact, Republicans have reclaimed some of that territory, even with Trump on, on the top of the ticket. So uh, I, you know, for the Republican party going forward, I can become optimistic if Trump loses, uh, that there is a, there is a, a path that the country is interested in. I think Democrats really have to ask themselves, well, what changed between 18 and 20? And, you know, court packing, uh, a year of incredibly progressive liberal messaging from everyone trying to win the nomination, except for Joe Biden, who did win the nomination. So I, you know, the future of the Republican Party, that question can't be answered without the future of the Democrat Party, because we compete in the same marketplace for these same voters. And what to me will be critical, the midterm will be interesting. I think both sides now, if it's divided government, have a lot of incentive to try to govern because they have a lot at stake in 22. If McConnell can get through a difficult map again in 22, he could be majority leader for the rest of his term. Um, so he has some incentive to be careful that make help win Wisconsin, Florida, some other tough states he has in 22. But heading then into 24, to me, the big question is these voters that are in the burbs across the country, college-educated white women by and large, that are shaping the outcome of the last two elections, what party do they participate in come 24 for the nomination? And I think the answer to that uh, will, will have a big, will, will be a big part of what comes of these parties here through the middle of the coming decade. Hmm. We're, we're, this would be a good question for uh, Shikari and, and Mindy as well. What, what do you make of, of the women vote, the, the vote by women? And of course, you know, there are so many different shades of, 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 of this question, but um, how, um, where, do, where do women go? Where do, where do college educated suburban women go? Where do non-college educated women go? Um, is this um, uh, is this a, a a generational shift that Trump has brought about? Is it is it transitory? What do you think? I'll let Shakari well, go first. Think, oh, thank you, Mindy. I think Rob raises a really important point. Before I go there, I actually want to make a broader point about this moment in history. I would venture that we are really on the cusp of a major transformation in American politics. And this is why I say that. If you look at American politics, it's largely cyclical. It's been that way for 100 years. Uh, all politics is personal, so I'll use myself as an example. You know, I was born in the 70s, uh, right at the end of what I would call the FDR New Deal coalition, uh, with the presidency of, of Jimmy Carter really signaling kind of a fracture in that Democratic coalition. And then we see the rise of Ronald Reagan and the anti-tax movement, which started right here in California. So we had the forming of a uh, Reagan coalition that has reigned pretty much for the last uh, 30 or 40 years in, in politics. And a key pivotal component of that coalition has been women and particularly white women uh, who have moved from the New Deal coalition 
in, which was solidified by labor into the suburban soccer moms that were pivotal, I think, even here in California with key victories in our congressional races and across the country. It's not yet clear where suburban white women will land ultimately as we transform uh, at the end of the Reagan era. And so I think Trump is, is kind of the Republican Jimmy Carter in some ways. Uh, even if he does pull off a victory, I think it signals really a dramatic transformation as the Latino vote grows, as the millennials out, out uh, surpass the, the baby boomers as, as the largest generation. Uh, and we see some real fractures among white women, both by class uh, as well as by geography, suburban versus urban. Um, the the working class uh, Republican white woman versus the suburb, suburban independent swing voter. So I think if we see some key breakthroughs for Joe Biden, it will probably be white women who are Trump voters who are shifting now over to the Democratic margin. And we just don't know where they're ultimately going to plant their flag. So interesting. So here's a here's a question from uh, none other than uh... Tim Foster of Capital Weekly, and this goes to Rob. Um, you suggested that the, the Democratic policies are what drove the Republican turnout this year. Um, uh, Tim's wondering, uh, though, wasn't it Trump who drove turnout in uh, 2020? He wasn't on the ballot in 2018, and Republicans didn't do well. How does that bode for a Trumpless party in 2022. Of course, so, I guess it assumes that there will be a Trumpless party. I'm not sure that that's yeah. Well, even if he's not president, I'm not sure we'll be Trumpless. Um, to make sure I'm clear and not misunderstood. I don't believe those issues drove turnout. My point is the, the, the big surprise of the election that appears to be holding is the gain of those House seats by Republicans. And they're essentially taking back some of those seats they lost in, eight, in 18. And you can attribute, you could attribute some of that to higher, maybe higher Republican turnout. We're going to have to do the autopsies on that. But I also think voters were over their purge, the R's midterm uh, effect in 18 and been watching a really progressive, a Democrat party projecting a lot of progressive messages over the last couple of years, which Biden has been trying to, to moderate so he can get elected. Mm-hmm. So, but the 2022, the 22 midterm, if it's a Biden midterm, I mean, this is this is what the Republicans need if they're going to have any type of resurgence. It would be a disaster in all likelihood for there to be a lame duck Trump midterm in 22 for the Republicans. Now, my friend Kevin McCarthy will never say it publicly, and I don't think Cocaine Mitch will say it publicly. But privately, this gives them life to be the two most powerful Republicans in D.C. for some time to come. And if, if McCarthy's ever going to reclaim a majority, he needs a Democrat, a Biden midterm in 22, to even, I think, theoretically have a chance to do that. I'm not predicting he will. We've got to see how there's a Biden administration. We've got to see how it, it all goes. But those are the dynamics that would be necessary uh, for, uh, for Republicans to, the current Republican power structure in Congress to extend themselves is for Trump to lose. So, um, so Trump has not killed the Republican Party, and this is to all our panelists here. Has he killed the Republican Party from where you sit, Roger, or Mindy, or Shikari? 
I'll jump in. Um, killed or morphed or changed. I mean, he certainly has done significant damage to the Republican Party. So the tactics that he is engaged in and the Republican Party has engaged in along with him, many of them, at least many leaders, um, may have you know benefited them in the short term um, quite significantly in terms of getting the presidency, in terms of getting three Supreme Court nominations, in terms of you know all of the policy right benefits that they have seen. Um, from their perspective. Um, but in terms of long, you know, the long range, as some of the things Shikari mentioned a little while ago, the change in the electorate um, that, it, that, that, is, that is in play now and, and, and will continue to, to happen. Um, and the very strong uh, negative, you know, associations that the Republican Party now has with Trump and Trump and his policies that young people, people of color have a visceral, many of them, not all, but many of them have a visceral reaction against, you know, there's been a lot of comparisons to what uh, Pete Wilson and the Republican Party did in 1994 with Proposition 187. It really set a narrative, right? Uh, in California, for Latinos particularly, which was a growing demographic group, associating the Republican Party with being anti-Latino, being a threat. Um, it changed uh, Latinos' uh, uh, registration to be skewed much more Democrat than it had been previously. And it, you know, it's a you know, it was a that combination with demographic change really helped uh, put us on a course for being a blue California. We're not completely blue. We have shades of blue and communities of red, but we're a blue California overall. And I think what's happened now with Trump, certainly the long-term damage is there. Uh, it, you know, it, it may, we're starting to maybe see some of it in some areas of the country, some demographic groups and certainly going forward. So um, the Republican party will have to evolve to some degree. Uh, we know that, and there will be um, internal, uh, uh, we'll say conversations for for quite a while in the immediate. Um, but you know they did the postmortem report back in 2012. None of this is a surprise. They were eking out um, some success in the in in the interim, right? With some very um, uh, you know with a unique candidate that allowed them to do that. So yeah, and, and yeah. I would just sort of add, uh, Dan, uh, just uh, um, from a Democratic perspective, uh, um, I, I agree that with many that, that the damage is probably going to be more on the longer term side, uh, much to the dismay of, of a lot of Democrats. Um, uh, the damage uh, that Trump may have done to the Republican Party wasn't as immediate as we'd like to see, as you see in this election. Uh, um, you know, I think a lot of Democrats were were uh, were. Uh, um, optimistic that the, that the, that you know that that there would not be as close of a race as you're seeing right now, uh, and at the presidential level, uh, and uh, um, and that we would you know that you know I, I heard all sorts of predictions the day before, which I thought uh, uh, you know were. Uh, uh, you know, a little overly optimistic uh, about the, the, you know, flipping the, you know, taking the Senate, uh, uh, doing massive gains in the in the legis in the in the House, uh, none of which have have, uh, have come to fruition. Um, so, uh, so I agree, I agree with Mindy that I think that 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 uh, given the generational shifts that we're seeing, the the, the demographic shifts that we're seeing, um, uh, this uh, uh, what Trump has been doing is a turnoff to so many people at at the at the in those emerging um, uh, in the in the emerging electorate that uh, that in the long term it does. I think a lot of damage to the, to the, to the Republican Party, uh, but again, in the short term, um, we, it just didn't materialize this election. Can I just make one quick uh, addendum or add something? You know, the, the more things change, though, the more things stay the same in some ways. So if we look at California, we'll look at the exit polls, which I'm one of the strongest critics of exit polls, uh, particularly at the state level, but they're what we have. Um, you know, 45% of white voters voted for Trump in 2020. 
45% of white voters voted for Trump in 2016. The margin in 2020 between Biden, Biden got um, uh, 53%, so an eight point margin, right, among white voters might surprise many listening here or viewing us today when we, how we think about ourselves, right, as a blue state in California. We have, you know, different realities, very different realities in terms of, of course, by party, but by, by race. If you look at other groups, uh, at least in California, Trump didn't win um, older voters, but he won or got close to winning, excuse me, in terms of, you know, getting up to that 50% margin when it comes to, to race, right, for whites. Um, we have to just understand that there people view uh, Trump and his policies and the reaction against Trump is just very different depending on where you are politically, but where you are socioeconomically, where you are in terms of just your identity. Uh, and I think we're that's still going to be in play for a very long time. Um, no doubt. You know, a big part of this also is just, you know, party loyalty as well. Um, and as after we get past Trump being president, at what, whether it's now or whether it's in four years, I think Trump will be seen differently historically by many people that even voted for him. But it, it's still different realities uh, in terms of how people view who he is, who his policies are, and even you know, statements that he makes. And uh, well, so, and, so Jennifer Hanks has an interesting question that is along these lines. So, actually, it's a two-part question, and I throw it out to all four of you. Um, what are the things that outsiders looking at California need to understand about the California election trends, and what are some of the California trends that you think are going national? or some that stopped in California before spreading outside of the state? I'll jump, I'll jump in. I, yeah. I don't know that California behaves all that differently than the rest of the country. Um, if, I mean, if Republicans end up reclaiming three congressional seats in California, that's pretty much what happened uh, across the country. Uh, you know, we're, we're known for being progressive. We're certainly uh, heavily blue, but labor got creamed at the ballot uh, statewide. Business won, 15 still, you know, obviously votes need to be counted. So I jog, don't, jog, I, the, jog the uh, uh, watcher's uh, memory, 15 is? 15 would be the split roll measure, which currently trails, but obviously there's millions of votes to count and we don't know how they're gonna trend. So, I, you know, that that is, in, that, that is in doubt. But other measures that uh, the business community uh, what had on the ballot or was trying to defeat on the ballot, they were very successful from rent control to what essentially was a referendum on AB5 by, by the gig companies to the bail industry, spending money to even survive, uh, uh, re, re, to be able to come back and exist. Uh, the amazing dialysis what, It's amazing what money can do. <laughs> well, you know, but, but that's not, if, if it's amazing what money could do, Roger, there'd be 60 Democrat US senators today too. I mean, so it's, you know, it requires money, money for a message, right? So I actually don't, you know, demographically, what's beginning to happen through the Sun Belt has already happened in California, but we've been talking about that for a while. So as Texas has gotten, you know, has gotten closer um, to, to being competitive as it was this year, that's demographic change. We've seen that coming. It's all not minority demographic change. A lot of it is uh, again, white suburban demographic change uh, as as well. So, I I I don't know that we're that special. So I don't. I'd be curious what everyone else thinks, but I don't know if there's any definitive trends here. 
So one thing I think it's important to take a look at is what's happening at the local level in many of our counties that had trans really transformative uh, policy on the ballot, uh, particularly L.A. County, where I am. Uh, so same, shameless plug for, for my region. Um, but one example really stands out for, for me, and I think it speaks to a national trend on racial justice and the way that the electorate and all segments of the electorate are thinking about some of the policies of the 1990s. And that plays out in proposition policies and what, what we expect to see in incoming electorate. So, so the example I would point to is Measure J in Los Angeles County, which uh, was a measure to set aside 10% of all county general revenues for the purpose of community reinvestment. The money cannot be used for jails or other carceral approaches. And so if we look at what happened with Measure J, it won with 57% of the vote. It comes, I think, on the heels of another transformative measure in 2017, which is a sales tax measure investment in the homeless, uh, which, you know, taxpayers don't often like to invest in um, money for our, some of our marginalized populations like, like the homeless. We're seeing a real transformation about where voters are willing to invest their money in addressing some of these really historic uh, intractable problems that have a racial dimension. And so I think that we will see transformative policy in California, particularly at the local level, trickling up to the state over time and also expanding across the country. And this is a NAS part of the national movement um, for the value of Black lives and other BIPOC communities um, that, that I think can have electoral consequences as well as policy consequences. I think we, we definitely saw that in 2018 in some of the uh, judicial elections, the elections of, of black women mayors. I think we see it in LA County with uh, the, the likely uh, ouster of Jackie Lacey and the election of George Gascon. So I think there are gonna be some local level implications uh, of what happens in uh, California uh, that will spread at the local level and at the county level across uh, the nation and then trickle up to electoral politics. We'll start seeing those changes uh, both in state houses and I think in, in uh, congressional ra races as we head into 2022. That certainly would be interesting. The, 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 um, I am so struck by the uh, apparent defeat <coughs> of the affirmative action and the in initiative to reinstate not an initiative, uh, the legislature put it on the ballot to reinstate um, affirmative action. Um, I mean, it doesn't even really look very close. Any thoughts on, on why that uh, flamed out? I think part of the real challenge was that many people were, affirmative action is a tough uh, policy, I think for a lot of reasons, many of which are the, you know, the, the politics of race around affirmative action has been a strong national and local talking point, colorblind policies uh, for 20 years. And so that's a very steep hurdle to overcome. What we actually did some research, uh, some qualitative research on, on Prop 16, and what we found is that the ballot language was really tough for a lot of people. They didn't, they, the real question for voters was who's for it and who's against it. So you might think that ballot language that references, you know, promoting diversity might do well in an election that's all about change and is about racial justice. 
such high attention to, to Black Lives Matter. But people often ask, is this another trick like 209? And I know for those Gen X and those boomer voters in communities of color, and this includes API communities or Asian American Pacific Islander communities and Latinx and black communities, they were really concerned that this was a Republican ruse to, um, you know, to, to lock in marginalization. And so it's, it's, I think, unfortunate. But again, if we look to some of the ground campaigns on the local level, particularly L.A. County, you know, you had 51, uh, close to 52 percent support for Prop- Proposition 16, 49 uh, percent opposed. And then at the state level, you saw just the opposite. So, again, I think that the what's half the organization and the mobilization at the local level has the potential to lift all boats. But we didn't see that happen in every region across uh, across the state. And I think that the ballot language was a key hurdle and also the negative baggage of just the idea of affirmative action. It worked well in black communities, but in Asian American communities, um, you know, that it was a tough sell, I think. Well, I completely, completely agree with uh, yeah, completely agree with Shikari on that. Uh, that that ballot language, langu- the ballot language was, uh, you know, a tough tough obstacle for uh, for that campaign. And I also, you know, the the countering uh, argument, which is like, hey, shouldn't everybody be treated fairly and and uh, you know and uh, on their own merits, uh, is tough to overcome with a lot of voters. And the you know and and uh, so it, it it confuses people and and. Uh, 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 ultimately, it's uh, from my perspective, it's a shame, uh, you know, that uh, uh, that the, that they weren't able to get that over the hurdle. But uh, um, uh, but but I think a lot of it has to do with that ballot language. Mm-hmm. Rob, I'll, you- I'll just add that we know too that if voters are, I do think confusion is, is part of this. If voters are not sure, unclear to some degree, they're more likely, generally speaking, right, to say to say no to something. And so a no doesn't mean that they don't want to see this in the future. A no for some voters is, I'm not sure what this is. Um, I'm not sure what we're, imp- we're implementing again, I'm, you know, that sort of thing. So just to, just to be clear there. And then also another thing we should we haven't talked about is just campaigning for many of these initiatives. Uh, and there's a few here, right? The way they're going, um, it looks a little confusing to, compared to what we might have expected. Um, campaigning was more difficult. Uh, reaching, especially voters, that might be more likely to vote yes on something like 16 or 15. Uh, it was even more challenging. Communities of color, low-income voters, uh, 15. Right. M- uh, my understanding is that the organizers, at least many of the organizers for 15, waited till 2020 because they expected a more favorable electorate. But then COVID happened, um, and it's you know more difficult to do that kind of uh, you know in in person certainly, but multiple touch kinds of. Uh, outreach and messaging that's needed to really help get voters out in this type. So that, you know, I'm not sure how much of an impact, but that could be at least, you know, part of a small part of the story. Well, I wonder if, if part of the issue was, is in these crazy times, maybe people just didn't want more change. Um, Dan, can I have six have about a minute left, Rob, but I'd love to hear your take on on 20 seconds. So 16 going down in a, in a year that should be reform minded, I hope would, spurn some discussion about other types of reforms than ones that voters probably look at as things that were tried decades ago, something like affirmative action. So it, you know, let's be, I think the voters are saying, bring us something new. You have to be open to that idea and look at what, how can reform look different than affirmative action? Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm just informed that I was mistaken. We have 15 minutes, which is great because- <laughs> Well, then I should keep talking. No, I'm yeah, go ahead, Rob. <laughs> 
Well, I want to jump in on, on Rob's point. You know, I Bob think it's it really is about... Oh, go ahead. No, I was, okay, I was, you know, he only had a minute. But now we have 15 minutes. Rob, you're on the spot. What What are those suggestions? Just kidding. I, well, we can have, start having the discussion, but with Shikarki, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that um, it's not only a new, we need a new policy. I think voter, the language of affirmative action was won by the Republicans or by conservatives, you know, back in 1996 and, and even earlier. So the language, you know, the policy, not, you know, you can have the same policy, which is directed funding toward marginalized communities, which, again, I point to L.A. County, did very well. It had strong racial justice language. So I don't know that this was a repudiation of an approach to directly aiding marginalized communities, but I think the messaging really has to be transformative in order to get some of these policies over the hump. The fact that this was repealing a constitutional amendment doesn't help because that sounds very scary to people. And just the language of affirmative action, I think, it was a battle that was fought and, and lost. And so that was the uh, that was just a really, really tough hurdle to overcome. The good news on 16 for, for reform, for real change, is it really didn't have any opposition. You know, the business community came in and, and supported it. And I think the sense is something's because we do need change. We need structural change. So, you know, we have a lot of people on the business side engaged and large donors. And I just think it would be interesting to have discussions about uh, redlining. What are the deep effects of that over decades now? How do we solve those types of issues? Uh, education and equity, all these things that are so systemic that I'm not sure everyone just thinks affirmative action after the fact uh, provides the full correction that may be necessary. So there is, that's the good thing about 16 having been on the ballot, is that there's a lot of opportunity here to get at something that maybe, you know, whether voters accept or not, but things that you can build, I think, large consensus coalitions around, and there are hard things that need to be done, it's time to do them. One of the, uh, one of the phenomena nationally seem to be the uh, what what folks are calling a red mirage that that on election night it seemed as if um, the, uh, Republicans had had or that Trump had had done better than as it has turned out he's doing in some of these states Michigan Wisconsin etc. Um, sort of the reverse has happened in California where on election night it looked like the California Senate was going to pick up. Uh, the Democrats were going to pick up four seats. They may end up picking up four seats, but those margins have truly narrowed. Um, so yet again, California. And, and, and not just there, Dan. Huh? I said, then, not just there. I had tweeted goodbyes to Devin Nunes. So that's, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so what do we make of that? So maybe, you know, two years ago, there was a, a, a people were assuming that, that, there weren't going to be a California seven uh, happened that there, that there was this year. Uh, the Republicans seem to be doing better on this late voting uh, or late tallying. Any insights as to what's going on there? Well, I think, I think voters in both parties listen to the, their leadership. And so Democrat voters with the mail option in California voted immediately and voted early. Uh, that's pretty much what happened across the country. You just have now states count those ballots differently, which is why we've had 
blue to red and red to blue trends going on in these last states where the the, the election balance is held. So yeah, it's a little psychologically weird for, for those of us in California because we're used to Democrat votes being added after election day. And uh, that, that it's not gonna be that big of a trend. It may even be a Republican trend. Uh, so it's a, little, it's a little jarring and disorienting. That's why, you know, Roger said goodbye to Devin Nunes too soon and, and things like that. But I get with you for your rest, the rest of your life, Roger. No, look, we're we're used to like waiting for for Alameda and LA to come in, uh, you know, to 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 make up, uh, you know, some of the the, the you know the differences. Uh, but I also think again. Uh, you have to sort of give, and I don't give credit to Republicans uh, uh, very often. I'm just not, it's just not my in my DNA. Uh, but the, but they did a good job of turning out that day of voting, uh, not just here in California, but across the country. Uh, you know, it was a, it's, a, you know, again, in the, in the Valley and in, in, uh, in Orange County and, uh, you know, and, and LA and other areas, uh, um, especially in those targeted uh, congressional races, uh, um, you know, they showed up on, on, uh, on election day and, and, you know, that's something that we're going to have to, to, to keep in mind. Again, this is a different type of year, uh, you know, with COVID and everything. So, you know, everybody's sort of learning as they go along. But, uh, um, but like I said at the, at the outset, there's a lot of lessons we're going to be able to take from this campaign. I do want to remind us, though, that, again, we do have still vote-by-mail ballots coming in. I mean, we did expect this kind of whiplash, uh, that the early vote would be skewed more, more Democrat. Um, and that we'd have a, you know, more Republicans at least voting on election day, but we still got a lot of vote by mail ballots. I don't think we're going to see as nearly as many as we typically see the two, three, four million coming in after election day, because I do think most of those were front loaded, but it's an open question in terms of how many are still out there. So Roger, I'm not saying that you should get back to the celebrating mode <laughs> at all. Um, but you may I'm gonna, I'm gonna be even feel better from now on. I'm not going to get too excited or too down. <laughs> yeah. It just we, we still just have some unknowns in this yeah. crazy year. Yeah. Um, if if uh, um, if the Senate, if those four seats in the Senate flip from Republican to Democratic, uh, there would be 33 Democrats, which would be a national or would be a, which would be a record in California. I am told that in 1883, there were 32 Democrats. But that was a very different. Well, you know what happened in '83. <laughs> um, so, uh, so here's a here's a question from from the audience about uh, the turnout in Georgia. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Democrats seem to have done a pretty good job of turning out voters. Um, why? Uh, can't that be replicated in Texas and North Carolina and some of these other states? I guess that would be a question for Shikari and Roger and Mindy. Uh, but of course, Roger, I'm in too. It, it can be. It's just gonna, it just takes time. And again, uh, you know the 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 the, di the I think that the you, the difference is uh, is is again you got the, the demographic makeup and and, and uh, uh, Georgia, uh, you know African American women voters. Uh, you know, are going to be, uh, you know, the, the, the big uh, players, uh, you know, I think when, when all, the, all those votes are added up and, and the, the analysis is done, uh, they had a tremendous impact there. Uh, um, and again, I, I'm, I'm still a little confused about what happened in Texas. So I, I really want to dig into, uh, you know, the, the, that, uh, um, uh, that vote there, because I, I did not expect to see Trump grow his Latino numbers. I mean, they weren't substantial, they weren't huge, but it was, it was, enough to, 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 to give me a little cause for concern there. Um, you know, I, I've been expecting 
Texas to flip to go blue. Uh, you know, and I thought maybe it would it would uh, it would potentially be there this time. Uh, you know, you would ask me a few years ago. I said I would have said we were still, you know, uh, you know another presidential election off from that in Texas. But uh, you know, it, it, it's it's fairly closer than I than I thought it was going to be. I just want yeah, to ask- I just echo. Go ahead. I was going to echo Roger just to say, I think it's just a matter of time. And I would really zero in on the youth vote and what we are seeing among youth of color, and that's Latinx and also African-American. Certainly the the, uh, vote among black women has been solid and growing and persistent. But if you look at, you know, some of the early reporting, particularly in uh, Georgia, youth made up 21% of the vote and supported Biden by 15 point margin. That's pretty remarkable. We're, we're typically seeing the youth vote, you know, at, a, at 11%, I think it was, um, uh, last go round. North Carolina youth made up 16%, and they were 16 points uh, for, for Joe Biden. Uh, and if we look at, you know, Michigan, for example, the, the margins are even higher. 15% of the vote was uh, among young voters, a 29-point margin for Biden. Pennsylvania youth vote was up 14%, 23-point margin. So I think the South is transforming because the, um, the new emerging electorate is people of color, Latinx, and African-American in particular. And that's not just true for the South. We're going to see that in other battleground states as well. What, um, from, a, uh, from a California perspective, um, People don't vote for the vice president. At least that's what I've read. Um, do you think Kamala Harris had any impact whatsoever or somewhat on on turnout in um, some of these states? Anybody? Uh, not in California. No, I, I don't. No. Not in California. Um, you know, for some individual voters, certainly in some states, um, it might helped with the enthusiasm around the Biden campaign. Um, I think that's important to note. Um, whether it made any difference in, you know, who's our next president, I, I, I can't imagine that it did. But um, I, 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 would, just... I would think it had to help in, in places like Georgia and, and, uh, um, and, uh, and even in Pennsylvania. Mm. And I would say for middle-aged Black women, that, that is probably the case, as, as well as some men. We did polling for Kamala Harris in the, in the presidential. Um, but I also think what's under-discussed uh, is the South Asian vote. You know, South Asians are the second largest AAPI um, community under Chinese Americans, in, in California especially. And the amount of energy and excitement around uh, Senator Harris and, and hopefully Vice President Harris uh, on the ticket, I think, made a difference. Uh, the South uh, Asian community is uh, less uh, outwardly political but we're energized this cycle and, and particularly in California and I would dare say in other places where they have sizable population centers like Texas. Uh, that's something that, that I'll be really interested in digging into, you know, as, as we do the autopsy on all this. And Rob, you've, you've got your opinion about Kamala Harris and her impact on, on this campaign. I, I just, I don't, I don't think VPs matter. So I don't, I don't, I don't have anything disparaging to say about, about the Senator, but I don't think that's what this election was nearly about. And, and Dan, I think there's a difference between enthusiasm, uh, 
between enthusiasm with campaign workers and volunteers that are out there mobilizing people and individual voters. So, you know, we saw this with with the Trump effect, certainly on Latinos as well. Um, if, you know, having Kamala Harris um, on the ticket in many places like Georgia can certainly bring more enthusiasm, potentially more volunteers, right? Maybe even more uh, funding uh, in some areas. And then the, that additional campaign, right, kind of machine, right, can then there, that's where a positive impact can happen. But at the individual voter level, I'm not so sure what that that impact is. Um, but if you get more people out there mobilizing people, that definitely right can be helpful. There's evidence she was good for fundraising for the ticket. So that's just the only distinction that I would make there. I think Latinos have seen a a lot more mobilization at the uh, organizational kind of efforts uh, that you know kind of rallying around um, uh, getting Trump out of office. At the individual Latino voter level, I'm, I'm not so sure how much that has made an impact. But again, all of those people mobilizing, connecting, and contacting individual Latino voters. That's where the impact is. So it's a distinction, but I just think it's important. Mm. So here's yeah, an and I think that Kamala Harris did matter for some segments of, of Black voters. And in an election, when turnout is so critical, I think every little point matters. And if the, the base is not enthused, be it by Trump on the Republican side or by someone like a Kamala Harris on the Democratic side, I think that would have been um, you know, very detrimental. So you have to have an energizing force. I think Biden didn't do it for many younger voters and for some voters of color um, that, who were Sanders voters or Warren voters. I don't think Kamala Harris got them all the way there, but I think she ener- energized women and potentially those suburban women that were on the, on the fence. And it, it makes a difference at the margin. I agree with you, Carrie, on that. So, um, so this would be a good one for Rob, I think. This is from... from an anonymous, an anonymous attendee wanted to know, uh, the Lincoln Project got a lot of attention. Do you think it had uh, an impact? The Lincoln Project being run by um, uh, current and former Republican strategists who, who really, really, really disliked Trump and wanted to uh, depose Mitch McConnell as well. What impact? Well, from an election uh, strategy perspective, no, I don't think they had really any impact. I think they run in space in Trump's head. And as much as Trump manipulates the rest of the world, I think they manipulated Trump on a lot of days that were to Trump's uh, detriment. So I think that's the case. Uh, The fact that they went out, I mean, they raised Democrat donor money and went hard against uh, a lot of Republican senators who won uh, suggests, I think, the strategy was flawed, if not ineffective. In fact, the, the joke in Republican consultant world today is you know, uh, when are the Democrats going to figure out the Lincoln Project was just a false flag that raised, you know, tens of millions of dollars and ineffectively spent it instead of it going to more effective run Democrat super PACs. So, right. I, you know, it's... Uh, so, so we're, Lincoln, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, well we're I, out of time. I mean, it's... No, it, it, it's, it's been outsized and has gotten a lot more fame. It's an MSNBC episode. Um, then I think any of it deserves and any impact it had on the election. And I, I, you know, and I, I vote again, and I didn't vote for Trump. I hate the guy, but they were full on Mm anti-GOP. All right. Hey, uh, Rob Stutzman, Roger Salazar, Mindy Romero, uh, Shikari Byerly. Thank you so much. I think this has been a really interesting hour, Tim. 
I'll turn it over to you and thank you so much for inviting us all. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks to all of our panelists. Thanks so much to Dan Moraine. And uh, I'll remind our viewers that we will be going to our keynote from Ace Smith. Ace ran... Uh...